This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. In business, service is everything. Cintas delivers what you need to better serve your customers. Whether it's freshly laundered work apparel for almost any job imaginable, tested and inspected fire protection systems, first aid and safety supplies, on-site AED training, or mops and restroom products stocked and ready when you need them. Better work days happen together. So visit Cintas.com. Oh, I'm ready! And get ready for the workday. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. The big event this week was the shooting down of a £235 million Russian A-50 long-range surveillance aircraft by a Ukrainian missile over the Sea of Azov, while a Russian command and control plane was badly damaged in the same attack. Other encouraging news for Ukraine was the announcement of two separate aid packages, €6 billion Euros from Germany and €3 billion Euros from the UK. Bizarrely, the EU condemned Germany's announcement on the grounds that it was going solo and said the money could have been better spent in the EU's own weapons fund. On the negative front, we've got the first strong indications of how the question that hangs over all calculations concerning the future of the war in Ukraine will be answered. That is, of course, who will be the president of the United States in 2025. Donald Trump's resounding victory in the Iowa primary has greatly boosted his chances, which at first sight is very bad news for Ukraine. We'll be discussing that later, but for the moment, let's accentuate the positive. Well, top NATO official Admiral Rob Bauer came out this week to state emphatically that Ukraine's war with Russia would, quote, determine the fate of the world. And as a result, all countries in the alliance needed to undertake a, quote, war-fighting transition. In other words, gear up their militaries for a potential conflict. One of several warnings about a future a regional or indeed global conflagration that's come out of the mouths of politicians in recent days. Well, President Zelensky, meanwhile, has told the World Economic Forum in Davos that the West needs to help Ukraine gain air superiority over Russia in yet another confirmation that its new strategy is to contain and degrade Russia rather than defeat it by a major breakthrough on the battlefield. On the Russian side, President Putin told municipal chiefs that, and I quote, Ukrainian statehood may suffer an irreparable, very serious blow if the current battlefield situation continues. 
and this is proof if anyone needed, that his maximalist objectives in Ukraine remain unchanged. Yet Russian forces continue to make only minuscule gains on the battlefield, tactical gains rather than operational, and at a huge cost in men, certainly giving the lie to his claim that they're winning the war and it's about to be resolved in Russia's favour. In Gaza, meanwhile, IDF officials have estimated that the network of Hamas tunnels is much bigger than they'd imagined, an underground network of at least 350 to 450 miles, with one big enough to drive a car down, and that it's unlikely they'll be able to destroy the whole network. Also some developments on the diplomatic front, Egypt's pushing for new peace talks between Israel and Hamas, amid concerns that the pro-Hamas Houthi attacks in the Red Sea will have a disastrous impact on its economy as revenue from vessels using the Suez Canal plummets. We'll discuss the implications of all this, but first, Saul, what do you know about the downing of those planes? Well, according to Major General Kirill Budanov, the chief of Ukraine's military intelligence, the A-50 Beriev long-range spy plane was shot down as it patrolled the Sea of Azov late last week, while the Ilyushin Il-22 Air Command Post, that other plane involved, was badly damaged and forced to land on the Russian Black Sea coast. He described it all as a, and I quote, perfectly planned and executed operation. The loss of the A-50 was confirmed by prominent Russian mill bloggers who suggested it might have been the victim of friendly fire. I don't think that's the case at all. But either way, it's a major blow because the A-50, codenamed Mainstay by NATO, is an early warning and control system used by Moscow to hunt down Ukrainian jets and missiles from up to 400 miles away. Its loss, and I quote, is significant because Russia has a limited number of them, according to Rob Lee, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. It's said to have begun the war with nine, but one was damaged in Belarus in March last year by Ukrainian saboteurs. Now, the most likely method of knocking down the A-50 was probably a Patriot missile fired from a mobile launcher in the Zaporizhia region. Its loss will impact Moscow's abilities to coordinate its military efforts around the clock. Okay, well, let's talk about money now. More good news for Ukraine. Uh, We mentioned it at the top. There are two announcements of aid this week, 6 billion euros from Germany and 3 billion euros from Britain. Germany, as we've often said, is Ukraine's second largest international backer after America. But it's also seeking to reduce its contributions to the £20 billion EU peace facility. What's that, Saul? Well, this has been set up as a kind of uh, European-wide military fund. I mean, I suppose if we think, uh, Patrick, ultimately the EU's intention is to create its own army, this fund is a, is a sort of you know underpinning of that. It, you know, it hasn't been stated that that's exactly what's going to happen. But you can see this as a sort of coordinated fund in which the militaries of Europe are putting their cash so that they can create some kind of system that all of them will contribute to and operate. Righty-ho. Okay, well, thanks for enlightening me on that one. So, uh, as I I understand it, they're they're arguing that by giving this money to Ukraine, Germany that is, uh, then uh, that should count against what it's expected to pay into this EU fund. Well, that produced a rebuke from Thierry Breton, the um, EU's commissioner for the internal market, who attacked Germany for, quote, going solo and not supporting this European peace facility. Now, Breton, as his name suggests, is a Frenchman. And he was actually, uh, there's a bit of a sort of um, argy-bargy going on here. Chancellor Schultz had earlier accused the EU member states of uh, not doing enough to support Ukraine. 
And uh, this was taken as a thinly veiled swipe at French President Emmanuel Macron. Paris has donated just 544 million euros in military aid directly to Ukraine since the start of all this uh, against the 17.1 billion euros that uh, Germany's kicked in. So France really has been uh, doing very little in terms of direct aid. Of course, there are all sorts of other things that they claim that they're doing on the side, which indeed they are, which they say adds up to um, to significant support. But certainly, I think the general view is France needs to do more. Macron has done a little bit to redress the balance this week when he said he'd signed a bilateral security agreement with President Zelensky and promised 55 million euros in extra aid, including 40 scalp long range. These are cruise missiles, which have been pretty effective so far. They're the equivalent of our storm shadow but it's they've still got a long way to go now getting back to this uh, nato general rob bauer admiral rob bauer he told a meeting a high level meeting in brussels that quotes we need a war fighting transformation of the alliance because we're now in an era in which anything can happen at any time it's essentially a call for member states to spend more on defense you know the song we've been hearing from across the Atlantic since who knows when. And he went on, Ukraine will have our support for every day that is to come because the outcome of this war will determine the fate of the world. And that's pretty kind of dramatic stuff, isn't it, Saul? Yeah, it is. Um, But he was probably right to say it. Uh, Before we get too carried away, however, we should remember that the serious money that's been pledged to Ukraine, that's £60 billion from the US and £43 billion from the EU, has been held up uh, in both cases Uh, in in the US by Republicans and in the EU by Hungary. But there have also been encouraging signs that the latter impasse may about to be ended. EU sources told the Politico website this week that Hungary is ready to compromise and that the £43 billion aid package for Ukraine will be approved, and I quote, within a couple of weeks. Let's hope that's the case because, as you mentioned at the top, Patrick, Trump's landslide success in the Iowa caucus is an early indication that US military support for Ukraine might not extend beyond the end of the year. Moving on to President Zelensky's speech to the Davos Forum, it's interesting that he spoke about air power. What he actually said was, we must gain air superiority for Ukraine just as we gain superiority in the Black Sea. We can do it. This will allow progress on the ground. Partners know what is needed and in what quantity. Now, this, in my view, is obviously a reference to F-16s, but also more anti-air systems like Patriot and arguably long-range missiles. And it's interesting that Dmitry Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, said much the same thing at Davos when he called for the West to be patient and maintain its support for Ukraine. Russia was a powerful enemy and it would take time to defeat it, he said. And he added, we defeated them on the land in 2022. We defeated them in the sea in 2023. And we are completely focused on defeating them in the air in 2024. So the strategy for this year is clear. Take control of the air. Do you think it makes sense, Patrick? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you've got an an increased air capacity, which is in the pipeline, then it gives you so much flexibility. It gives you an offensive capability. It gives you a defensive capability, which um, is certainly a significant part of the strategy at the moment. That is the emphasis on husbanding resources, saving lives, really essentially taking a leaf out of the Putin playbook and turning time to your advantage. But of course, that depends on ongoing support, which depends on America, uh, which we're 
about to discuss. But before we do that, um, just a, a bit of kind of, you know, uh, crystal ball gazing has come out of the ISW, who we often quote about Ukraine's future prospects in an interesting report entitled Ukraine's Long-Term Path to Success. Now, in their view, Ukraine is pursuing three ways to expand its defense industrial capacity and reduce the need for foreign assistance. Obviously, a very intelligent, uh, long-term strategic ambition because of the uncertainty, you know, this reliance always on the goodwill of uh, partners, particularly America. Now, the way they're going to do this, according to the IASW, is by increasing its domestic, Ukraine's domestic defense industrial base, building bilateral and multilateral partnerships with European states, and pursuing industrial joint ventures with the United States and other international enterprises to co-produce defense materials in Ukraine and elsewhere, i.e. weaning itself off this uh, dependence on outside players. In the long term, according to this report, Ukraine's prospects for sustaining its military forces with limited assistance from foreign powers are excellent. It adds Ukraine is heavily industrialized with a highly educated and technically sophisticated population. It had a massive arms industry during the Soviet period and continued to be a significant arms exporter after independence. Well, you know, this is all the more urgent, isn't it, uh, because of what's been happening in America. So let's turn to the big orange elephant in the room, Saul. Let's face it, <laughs> Trump is most likely, he's most likely now to win the presidential election in November. I mean, it's by no means a done deal, but, you know, that, that was a resounding result in Iowa. And, you know, he's, it seems absolutely um, inevitable. He's going to get the Republican nomination and on the current poll evidence, he would beat Biden if Biden is indeed the Democratic candidate. So what do you think this means, Saul, for Ukraine and indeed for the world in general? Well, we spoke last week, didn't we, Patrick? I mean, we've been anticipating this for a long time, and you could bet your bottom dollar the Ukrainians are too. It is concerning because uh, there is a very real likelihood that by the beginning of 2025, the taps will have been firmly turned off. Probably, but not definitely. I mean, he's done some pretty strange things in his time. And it also depends on who has his ear in terms of his advisors. But let's just assume that the taps are turned off. I think, as I say, that Ukraine is already anticipating this, which is why you get this report from the ISW, that it's already taking steps to effectively make itself self-sufficient. This doesn't mean that it won't have any links with any other countries. Um, as the ISW says, it's, it's building up these multilateral partnerships, these bilateral partnerships. And Europe, frankly, Patrick, has to step up. In the end, even if you can convince a significant chunk of America that, you know, overall strategy, uh, what happens in Europe does affect them, it's much easier to convince Europeans that that's the case. Certainly anyone towards the east of Europe that will undoubtedly see Russia as a serious threat. And you can see country after country, particularly in the east, stepping up in their assistance for Ukraine. And this is not going to diminish anytime soon. So, of course, it will be a blow. America has been the greatest funder, but this will not, as some Western commentators seem to believe, mean inevitable defeat from Ukraine. On the contrary, we may have a frozen conflict for a good deal longer, of course, but a lot can happen in this year uh, and a lot of uh, preparation for building up a separate capability out with American support will happen over the next 12 months because it has to. What's your take on all of this, Patrick? 
Well, I was struck by the tone, uh, you know, his victory speech, his speech to his supporters. You know, he, he didn't sound like the, the Trump we all know and uh, <laughs> we all know and, you know, fill in blank here. Yeah. He said something uh, unexpectedly. He said it would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing that's practically never been like this. It's just so important. So this sounds like a kind of uh, a uh, calmer, kinder Donald Trump. But despite these noble sentiments, I don't think this is a sign that he's going to do a a flip-flop and suddenly become more proactive. I mean, his whole shtick is is isolationist, doesn't it, really? It's, his whole appeal is to this very deep vein uh, in the American psyche. Why should we get involved in other people's, the rest of the, of the world's messes? You know, this is uh, for them to sort out. So, you know, like you rightly say, Saul, you never know with Donald Trump. But I, I would say at first sight, this is good news for the kind of bad boys of the world. So it's good news for Iran. They can carry on their meddling, which I'll be talking about later without fear of major US military responses. It's good news for China, I would say. On the Taiwan question, Xi will feel that he's got little to fear from a robust American response uh, if he turns up the heat, which he shows every sign of doing, uh, given the, um, from their point of view, Chinese point of view, very negative result in the presidential election with a um, pro-independence winner there. It's bad news, I think, like you were saying, it's all for NATO. You know, Trump's been consistently hostile to NATO, and it's going to be a big wake-up call for Europe, who will have to now expect to pay more for its own defence, which is fair enough. But I think they're also going to have to accept that Trump doesn't see why the US should be engaged in European security at all. And Europe's going to have to work harder on its uh, strategic, long-term ambition of gaining strategic autonomy. But I think if he does get in, it will mean a further retreat from US global engagement. And I would say that makes the world a more dangerous place all around. Okay, moving on to Gaza. The IDF has admitted that Hamas's tunnel network is much bigger than it previously thought and may extend as far as 450 miles in length. I mean, that's an astonishing uh, distance, if you think about it, Patrick, because the Gaza Strip is only 25 miles long and six wide. So you've got this extraordinary network crossing back and forth, including uh, access shafts, according to the IDF, 5,700 in number, which lead down to the network. And so you can see that to destroy it entirely is going to take a long time. How long? Well, IDF officials say years. And here's the crucial thing. May, this may never actually be accomplished. In other words, they may never be able to destroy the whole network. And this is significant because Israel's stated aim of eradicating Hamas is obviously dependent on destroying the tunnels. Now, the other interesting development this week is that Egypt has restarted efforts to broker a deal between Israel and Hamas as attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea by Houthi rebels threatened to derail its economy. The Houthi action has already caused many shipping companies to reroute around the Cape, thus reducing by as much as 40% the revenue that Egypt makes from using the Suez Canal. 
tourism has also been hit. And if we consider that these are the two uh, biggest forms of revenue in Egypt, it's a serious problem. So Egypt clearly has a vested interest in ending the war in Gaza, which of course is the Houthis' stated reason for its attacks in support of the Palestinians. The result of all of this is that envoys from both Israel and Hamas have been in Cairo talking about a possible ceasefire agreement, according to the Times, which cites intelligence sources. Of course, talking and actually achieving something are two entirely different things. So Patrick, do you have any hopes of optimism through all of this? Well, I think uh, you know the fact that talking is a good sign, and it does indicate, as you said, Saul, that you know the stated IDF objectives are not going to be realised. They're not going to wipe out Hamas. Uh, they've actually made very little progress on taking out the leadership, haven't they? If you uh, if you stand back and just look at, at what they're claiming, not much being said at all about top leaders being eradicated in in the bombing campaigns and indeed on the in the ground campaign so yeah they're slipping further and further away from their their stated objectives but eventually as this is an unwinnable war as we've said before some sort of deal will have to be done but i fear it will be a long time coming just getting back to the hooties i was rather taken aback i wonder whether you were too with the objections that were raised in the british parliament to this action saying that it was only going to make things worse in the region. I mean, my view is that the Houthis are not good in any way good guys. They're basically, you know, what their actions are piratical, whatever gloss they put on them, whatever claim they make that they're actually reacting or going to the aid of the Palestinians in some obscure way. As far as I can see, it's basically more, you know, Iranian troublemaking and they're doing the Iranians bidding on this, just causing trouble at the fringes, which, as you rightly say, has a very significant effect on the rest of us, on the world economy at large. So what are navies for? Navies are there to to keep the trade routes open. And uh, this is a direct assault on that. So um, this is just a classical naval operation, as far as I can see. Uh, There is no other choice but to send a signal to the Houthis. I don't think they're ever going to actually destroy their capability to mount these attacks, but they can certainly make further operations pretty painful for them. The Houthis have, have proved up to now they can absorb um, a hell of a lot of pain. But I think the signal is really being sent not directly to them, but to Tehran and to tell the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the political leadership there that it's just really not worth a candle and that we can go on doing this for as long as it takes. What do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the <laughs> it's tricky, isn't it? The, the question always is, does military action have much effect? But I think so out of hand were the Houthi rebels getting that, that the US and, and Britain and some of the other European states that are involved really had no option. They had to do something. Otherwise, you accept that trade through the Suez Canal is going to be seriously disrupted with, as you say, Patrick, all the effects on the world economy that that brings. I mean, this is an example, in my view, of America and Britain, for that matter, acting as world peacemaker, albeit using lethal force to do that. It may may be a sort of strange concept. It certainly would have been to my late mother, Patrick, who always felt that any form of military action was unacceptable. But I always used to mention the Second World War to her and say, well, what did you think about, you know, what we had to do to survive as a nation then? And she sort of paused and used to say things like, well, that was different. But I don't really think it was different. There are times, certainly, I'm afraid, when military force has to be used as a force for good, as of course it is being, I think we both agree, in Ukraine. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions 
including a lot about what Iran is really up to and is there a real danger of a regional conflagration. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Neville. He's a former New Zealand Air Force squadron leader, and he asks, given Russia's penchant for nuclear threats, has there been any information on their adapting drones to deliver miniaturized nuclear warheads? A nuclear warhead delivered by drone with a kill zone of, say, five to 10 square kilometers will have a huge psychological effect while limiting the size of the devastated area. Just the sort of thing uh, Neville thinks that Putin might try if circumstances turn against him. Have we heard anything about this, Patrick? Well, first of all, so I'd like to congratulate you on your pronunciation of penchant. <laughs> I, was expect, I was expecting to hear penchant. It's a good English word, so nothing wrong with that. Anyway, to get back to the question, well, first of all, we've, we've been here before, haven't we, when, when the sabre-rattling was going on last year, and I think the, the answers remain the same. Well, first of all, the military effect of these uh, in a battlefield nukes is limited to be effective. They've got to basically strike a large... Uh, troop or equipment uh, concentration, and the nature of the battlefield as it is at the moment means that these these aren't really available as targets. So things are pretty spread out. Secondly, obvious point: Russian troops would not be able to occupy the contaminated area for some time. But I think most importantly, for Putin to do this, it would bring the world's attention back to Ukraine, and it would underline uh, for the doubters uh, the seriousness of what's at stake here, concentrate minds on the necessity of beating Russia and dethroning, hopefully, Putin in the process. So this is just exactly what Putin doesn't want. His strategy has has been, for the last year or more, on gaining gradual acceptance of the status quo, trying to induce a sort of war weariness uh, and persuade the West that Ukraine has gone as far as it can and it's not going to get any further. It's time to cut a deal. So using tactical nukes now would be an act of stupidity, I think, on a scale uh, with the original decision to launch the invasion. Now, we've got one here from Ian Nesbitt. He says, uh, this is about the maximalist approach 
the Ukrainian government is taking at the moment about reoccupying every square meter of territory. And I, Ian says Russia has occupied the Donbass for some time now. Given the stripping out of local populations to be replaced by Russians, the removal of useful economic materials, and the general accumulation of degradation that has accompanied Russian occupation in other areas, it seems likely that, quotes, liberating the Donbass, unquote, may be less of a liberation than an invasion. So the question is, is there anything valuable enough in the Donbass to spend Ukrainian blood and treasure on if the locals are no longer a welcoming population and the infrastructure has been even more destroyed than much of the rest of southeast Ukraine? Uh, This is particularly so if a rebuilt Donbass remains close to the border with Russia, so vulnerable to future aggression and subversion. What are your thoughts, Saul? Well, it's a big coal mining region, industrialized region uh, more generally. And so there are things there that Ukraine wants to uh, get its hands back on. There's also the issue of the matter of principle, frankly, Patrick, of an invasion of sovereign territory. uh, And you can't let that stand. And that's obviously uppermost in Zelensky's mind. At the same time, I do take Ian's point that if any bit of Ukraine is going to be bargained across to the Russians in the peace talks that will surely come at some stage, it might be the Donbass. It certainly won't be the Zaporizhia or Kherson, the other oblasts that have been claimed by Russia. But but the Donbass, possibly, on the grounds that, yes, the population, uh, a lot of Russians have been brought in there, a lot of Ukrainians have left. But that doesn't mean everyone there is anti-Ukraine uh, by a long chalk. We know that from some of the partisan activity in that region. And also some of the anecdotal evidence we've got when people are on on the run, so to speak, and they're getting assistance from some of the local population. So you've also got to calculate a lot of people there thinking, hold on a second, you know, who actually is to blame for all of this? I may be being a bit optimistic in that view, but there are multiple factors involved here. But as I say, if any bit of, of sovereign Ukraine is handed over in a peace deal, it might be the Donbass. Yeah, it's a bit like Alsace and Lorraine for the French, isn't it, Saul? You know, of course, they lost them in 1871 when they lost the Franco-Prussian War. Now, you know, Alsace is quite a sort of Germanic place. It's got uh, many of the inhabitants have got Germanic-sounding names. A lot of people spoke German. And indeed, uh, some of the inhabitants actually sympathized with the first the Kaiser and then the Nazi regime. But despite the fact that it had been lost it was a burning issue with the french it was a, a kind of rallying point we've got to get alsace and lorraine back and i think the same thing's going on here with the donbass you know it's uh, the donbass is is part of of ukraine's internationally recognized borders and i think um, that's how most of the people in the in the country see it and the act of invasion by russia has only made this belief all the more profound now, there may be, the Russians may have a point about the population preferring to be inside Russia. But the way to, to settle this matter, of course, is, is to encourage you know, a peaceful separatist movement and decide the matter by a plebiscite rather than invading. Tim Morris in New Zealand. Again, we've got a lot of people in the Southern Hemisphere, haven't we, writing in? So. Now, Tim's got a multi-point question. He says, a while back, Ukraine claimed to have taken out the commander of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Some unconvincing and undated video of the commander was subsequently produced by Russia. 
Was it ever established, he asks, if the commander of the fleet was removed from office or did he survive? I remember those sort of kind of rather <laughs> staged-looking video that was put out to prove that he came through the episode unharmed. Elio, the second question is, the lack of Russian effort to interdict supplies to Ukraine seems surprising. In particular, why do you think the Russians have not gone for the Dnipro River crossings? Similar to the 2022 situation with the Russians on the right bank at Kherson, but at a larger scale and in reverse. They seem to have plenty of drones and missiles from other non-military targets. Is this just beyond their abilities? What do you know about that? Yeah, well, I'll deal with the second one first. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's a very good good point, actually. I mean, how on earth have they allowed this lodgment on the east bank of the Dnipro, which still exists? Well, the truth of the matter is they are trying to move heaven and earth to knock out this lodgment because it obviously uh, presents a threat in the future, but they're having very little success in doing so. I mean, they've been using their normal tactics, which is launching wave after wave of uh, infantrymen, and they've been being mowed down. But I suppose Tim's point is, why not use missiles? Um, And I think the broader point here is that actually their missiles are a bit of a blunt instrument. They are not terribly accurate, even the Kinzals. uh, And they simply don't have the same ability that Ukrainians have for these type of precision strikes that would enable them to prevent the uh, Ukrainians from getting other kit and supplies across the river. Going back to Sokolov, this is fascinating. Um, We'll remember this in in September, Patrick, that strike on the Russian Black Sea headquarters in Sevastopol, which was said to have killed 34 people, officers of the high command of the Russian Black Sea fleet, including the commander Sokolov. Well, a day or two later, as you remember, Patrick, the Russians introduced videos in which Sokolov was there alive and well. But the question is, were those videos taken before the event? Almost certainly in every case and there were three or four put out, they were. So pretty simple, really, uh, to prove that he's still alive after the event. And yet there hasn't been a single sighting of him, Patrick. It's all very mysterious, but it's also pretty revealing, I think. I mean, Russia tends to not to admit anything that would give uh, Ukraine propaganda value. But if he really had survived, why haven't we seen him since? It seems to me that he probably was indeed killed in that initial strike. Now, we've got a really interesting one here from Philip Minns. Philip doesn't say where he's from. He says, uh, starts off with a compliment, which we're always very grateful for. He says, thanks for your excellent podcast. I've been listening since the beginning of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I've learned a lot from both of you and the experts you've interviewed. He cites Anthony Beaver and Simon Seabag Montefiore among those. Now, he says, I recently had an interesting exchange on X." And thankfully, he doesn't say formally known as Twitter, like it seems to be compulsory (laughs) these days. Anyway, this was about Taurus missiles, which we were talking about the other week. And he wants to share this with us. And uh, we're very grateful for this because it's very interesting stuff. He says, I regularly intervene to complain that the German government is not providing these missiles to Ukraine. And he recently got a response from uh, someone called Buzilis at Jan Leschke who he says seems to know a lot about the German military-industrial complex. Now, the first answer he got was that tourists would be supplied by Germany once technical details, in quotes, had been settled. Now, when Philip queried what these technical details were, and he said it seems to him just another excuse, the response he got was in four parts, and the content of the message was very, very interesting. Basically, there were two things. First, Scalp, the French cruise and Storm Shadow, the British equivalent, 
are programmed by the French and the British to hit specific targets and that the Ukrainians have no access to the data, meaning that they can neither program the missiles themselves nor reprogram them to hit another target. The obvious one, of course, is the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to Russia. And this um, Buzilus claims that these are off-limits for these missiles. So basically, they're giving them the, the missile, but modified in such a way that it can't hit certain very sensitive targets like the Kerch Bridge. The respondent also said that the German military is constitutionally barred from participating in armed conflict in another country and cannot therefore program tourist missiles themselves. So those are the technical details that have to be settled before the missiles can be delivered and that uh, the defence minister, Pistorius, has promised that tourists will be delivered in 2024. Well, we've heard a lot of a lot of this, haven't we, in, in recent weeks. Or, now, he goes on, this is uh, Philip, if all this is true, it seems that the Ukrainians will get these missiles, but they will only be allowed to hit certain targets, certainly not including the Kerch Bridge, unless there's some massive change of heart on the part of NATO, who still seem to be inordinately afraid of Putin and the threat of escalation. And he cites our old friend Phillips O'Brien as saying more than once in his excellent newspaper, the Ukrainians are having to fight this with one hand tied behind their backs. So what do you know about this all? Yeah, no, I mean, this is all new to me. I mean, it'd be fascinating to talk to a missile expert as to uh, whether or not all of this is really uh, possible. Patrick, uh, cast your mind back to that episode we did during the Falklands conflict about whether or not the French had the capacity to actually deflect their missiles while they were in the air. And these, of course, were the exosets, which the Argentinians were using against us. And that we apparently blamed the French for after the conflict was for over, for not giving us the data that would have allowed us to disarm these weapons. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it, to think that the country that actually manufactures these weapons still has an inordinate amount of control about how they're being used. And that's essentially the point that's being made by Philip. So no, I don't know. Do I believe it? Well, it's certainly possible. And it's certainly possible. And it might explain why up till this point, shadows and scalps have not been used against the Kerch Bridge. So all fascinating stuff. Keep those sort of messages coming in. But it does sort of slightly contradict some earlier information we got. Do you remember an episode or two back when someone got in, con in contact to say that uh, the Taurus was actually a devastating weapon, more so than the scalps and the, and the storm shadows, because it had this sort of sensing device, if that's the right word, which allowed it to kind of not for the warhead not to explode until it had gone through the relatively soft surface of the Kerch Bridge and only, it would only actually detonate when it hit the structural concrete, which would bring the bridge tumbling down. This, this is what made it a more effective weapon. But if it's got this capacity, but it's not actually uh, going to have the ability to hit the target for whatever technical reason, then that rather cancels it out. All very confusing and, uh, frankly, rather dismaying, isn't it, that why bother sending the thing with all it, unless you're actually going to allow it to be used to its full destructive capacity? Okay, we've got a bit of a mea culpa here, um, uh, and not for the first time, I might add, Patrick, but I think it's good that you and I are both able to admit when we're wrong. Well, we've got a message from Emir Krupic uh, in Ukraine. We've heard from Emir before, and he says, hello, gentlemen, you have tainted your otherwise excellent Ukraine coverage with some poorly researched comments about tit-for-tat strikes regarding Belgorod. 
are just making us look bad here, and it is not appreciated. Ukraine, he says, was targeting some missile launchers located behind Belgorod. Effectively, the Russians were using the city as human shields, and it paid off to fool a bunch of commentators. You were not the only one, so I don't hold any malice for your transgression. What actually happened was, that was, as the Ukrainian government stated, it was poor use of Russian air defense that caused the destruction and deaths in the city. And it was spent on first stage boosters from the Panziers, those are the anti-air missiles that the Russians use, that fell on the cities, not our missiles, which were good for the three missile launch sites attacking us behind Belgorod. Well, if all of that sounds quite confusing, I've kind of looked into this with the two links that Emir sent, both um, Western news sites. And from them, it's pretty clear what happened. And Emir is absolutely right. I mean, if you look at a map, you can see that Belgorod is just about 35 kilometers from Kharkiv. And all around Belgorod are these Russian missile launch pads, which they are using to send missiles, S-300s and others, into Kharkiv. And we know that in the last few weeks, Kharkiv's had a lot of destruction caused by these missiles. And the fact that the distance is so short is actually very difficult for the Ukrainian air defenses to react. So what then happened is that the Ukrainians immediately responded by sending drones into Belgorod uh, over the city towards these missile launch sites. And when they'd actually targeted them or spotted them, they then launched attacks by artillery against these sites in an attempt to knock them down and also sent missiles in. Now, this is where the Russians responded by trying to shoot down the drones, the missiles, uh, interdict them. And it's these explosions that caused the Russian deaths. This, of course, was painted by Russia as Ukraine uh, attacking civilians, but it was nothing of the kind. And Actually, when you play all of this out, Patrick, it does make an awful lot of sense, doesn't it? Because you and I both said, why on earth would Ukraine be drawn into, as we described it, tit-for-tat strikes? Well, clearly it wasn't, and the deaths were caused by the Russians themselves. So, Emir, we're very glad to have been able to straighten that out, and uh, more power to Ukraine for consistently sticking to military targets when it sends munitions into Russia or indeed elsewhere in occupied Ukraine. Um, It's a policy it should stick with, and it seems that it is. Okay, moving on to Gaza and Yemen, um, we've got a couple of questions which uh, we're going to roll together. The first is from Ben Noble. With regards to the strikes on the Houthis, it appears that experts on this group generally don't feel that limited strikes are going to stop them. This is backed up by the fact that years of not that limited aerial bombing by the Saudis, as Ben put it, uh, doesn't appear to have dampened their resolve. And James asks the question, With the fighting and conflict in the Middle East now broadening, I write after Allied bombing of Yemeni targets today, I'm interested to know your assessment of the capacity and capability of Iran to coordinate or be drawn directly into a wider Middle East conflict. I would have always thought Russia was a much uh, larger and capable military power, but the idea of them presently being able to coordinate a second conflict or front of any size seems unlikely now. There is concern about the US ability to support military action in Ukraine and Israel. So what is the actual scale and capacity of Iran to be a serious support to Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthi fighters, as well as supply any of their own forces into the region? Patrick, what's your thinking about that? Well, this is a question that's been on everyone's minds, hasn't it, In uh, since this uh, latest flare-up following the October the 7th Hamas massacres. So let's just step back a bit and, and, and let's look at what Iran has actually achieved in the region in this century, basically. Well, for years now, 
they've been building up this so-called axis of resistance, which is a territorially contiguous network of militias and organizations throughout the region, stretching beyond Iran into Iraq, where they've got these popular mobilization forces, which is this sort of multifarious group of militias, which is basically directed by Tehran. Then through Syria, where they've been supporting the um, Assad government, to Lebanon, where we all know they've got uh, Hezbollah controlling large chunks of the country. Also Hamas, Islamic Jihad in in Palestine, and the Yemeni Houthi groups. Now, they've armed them, they've funded them, they've generally created an extraterritorial force from this sort of ragbag of military organizations that they can activate whenever they like to cause problems for their arch enemies in the West, notably the uh, US and Israel, and of course, uh, not forgetting their Sunni enemies uh, in the Arab world. Now, they've been quite successful at this, and this was acknowledged by the Israelis themselves. Former Mossad director Yossi Cohen said back in uh, 2018 that Iran's asymmetric warfare strategies had shaped a geopolitical landscape in which Iran effectively bordered Israel through Hezbollah, but Israel did not border Iran. Now, most of the credit uh, for this development is given to Qasem Soleimani, who was the leader of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps Al-Quds Force, which is charged with organizing all this extraterritorial activity. Cohen said that Soleimani had, quotes, personally tightened a noose around Israel's neck. Now, where is Soleimani now in this latest crisis? Well, he's nowhere. He's dead and has been for four years after he was taken out by an American missile strike at Baghdad Airport, authorized by then President Trump in revenge for Soleimani's role in coordinating attacks on American soldiers in Iraq. Now, this guy was was a huge hero in Iran. He was the right-hand man of the Iranian supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, and the second most powerful man in the land. So this is a huge provocation. Taking him out is, is, is a massive challenge to Iran. But despite all the endless blood-curdling threats that followed, the Iranians have been completely unable or unwilling to come up with a riposte, I suppose, fearing the consequences if they do. So this is a long-winded way, perhaps, of saying that I personally doubt that the Iranians have the capacity or indeed the will for the moment to do much more than act as mischief makers in the region via the Houthis and Hezbollah, etc. And, you know, the fundamental truth is Israel and America can do much more harm to Iran than Iran can do to Israel and America. Now, that situation is, in my view, likely to continue until they get an atomic bomb, of course, which they are now much closer to doing than they were a few years ago, thanks to Donald Trump's decision to unilaterally withdraw the US from the Joint Comprehensive Action Program. That was the nuclear arms agreement signed with Iran back in 2015 and orchestrated by his predecessor, Barack Obama. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us next week for another episode of Battleground 44 and also on Friday when we'll be rounding up the latest news from Ukraine and Gaza and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.